0: Well, we are starting a a new series for a number of weeks in 1 Corinthians, um, which we picked partly because of what's going on in the Church of England at the minute, uh, but also it is a terrific book uh, that reminds us to build our lives around Jesus. The series is called uh, Called to Be Holy. That's what we want to be doing. That's what 1 Corinthians is about. We get that in the opening sentence, uh, to the Church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people called to be holy, which is to say that we are saved by Jesus for a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God by being set apart from the world around us. God is holy because he's set apart. We are his people, holy, we're different from the world around us. Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth, which is a busy, multicultural port city in Greece. You can read all about it in Acts 18 if you want to. But after a time there, he disappears off and he's doing ministry elsewhere. But report reaches his ears that all is not well in the Corinthian church family. There's division caused by teachers. There's sexual immorality. There's people just serving themselves on Sunday at church. And even those denying the resurrection of Jesus and his people. And so Paul writes to correct the Corinthians, calling them... To holiness, that is, lives that are different because they are built around the gospel of the resurrected Jesus. So verse 2 is going to be a key verse for us. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. It might read, to the church of God in Chesham, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. So, in this series, we're going to hear assurance. We're going to hear we are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Whatever you've been struggling with this week, whether it's the alcohol or whether it's the pornography or whether it's the anger, I don't know what it is. Actually, we are sanctified and that means we're saved. So, it is entirely right to say that we are saved or justified or sanctified by faith alone. But we're also going to be challenged in this series. We're going to be called to be holy, to live God-glorifying different lives. And that is where faith alone does not make our lives fit our heavenly status. Faith alone does not make our lives fit our heavenly status. That actually takes repentance and work and persistence And most of all, the grace of God to keep us going in all of that. So the aim here is, may the way that we are united as a church and with other Christians, may the way that we're united and the way that we use our bodies and our sexuality, make the teaching of our God and our Saviour attractive and beautiful to us, to our families and to all of Chesham. That's what our prayer is. Should we pray for that as we start this series? Lord God, we do long what it says in Titus 2, I think, Lord, that we, Lord, would glorify and make attractive this teaching about our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Lord, that the way we live and the way that we use all the gifts you've given us, our lives, our bodies, our relationships, Lord, that all these things... We glorify you and make you so beautiful and wonderful in our eyes and the eyes of those around us. Bless us by your spirit, Lord, with the power to change, the power to hear, first of all, and the power to change and to live for you. For, Lord, that is life to the full when we are most delighted and most tuned to you and that reality of your love. Amen. Amen. Um, And Vivian, I think, is now going to come and read for us. Oh, I just shut it.
1: So the passage we're reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and is found on page 1144 of the Church Bibles. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there will be no divisions among you, but that you will be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another... I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Caius, so no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Sophanos. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: Thank you very much, Vivian, for... uh Reading, just let me pray as we unpack that passage. Father, thank you again for your words. Thank you for that joy we have and privilege of hearing you speak to us into our lives. Again, give us ears to hear what you want to say to us this morning, we pray, for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, if the uh, Apostle Paul uh, were to write a letter to Emmanuel, I wonder what he would want to say. Uh, Would it be a largely positive letter, uh, with much to encourage and commend, or would it be a letter that would be uncomfortable to, to hear? Well, I'm sure that when Paul's letter plops onto the mat, I imagine that most in Corinth Um, would have expected the dominant note of Paul's writing to have been one of commendation and praise. Uh, Indeed, if you'd listened to their services or attended their services, uh, heard perhaps their weekly podcasts, you'd have been uh, hugely impressed uh, by what you heard. Uh, Powerful speakers with eloquence and presence uh, filled the pulpit week by week. And there was a real buzz of excitement and anticipation as uh, the church gathered uh, for worship. Uh, Everywhere you look, there'll be evidence of the spirit at work. It seemed in very powerful and spectacular ways. And and certainly, if you were coming in fresh from the sleepier parts of the Roman Empire, uh, the energy and buzz of Corinth, uh, a very prosperous, a very confident uh, city, uh, was very much apparent in the church that gathered in that place. But as Ed's already mentioned, we're going to discover that all was far from well uh, in the church. Indeed, alarming reports had come to Paul that he would uh, uh, that would cause Paul very quickly to reach for for quill and parchment. You see, a church that had once been united in the gospel was in danger of fragmentation, uh, not around great doctrinal issues largely, but around preachers, favorite preachers, and personalities. It seems to become a place where quarrelling and dissension reigned. And if that wasn't bad enough, the church had. Uh, become increasingly like uh, the city around it in terms of its sexual practices. In many ways, uh, Corinth was a Soho or the Amsterdam of the Greco ancient worlds. Indeed, um, around that uh, temple, I think it was at Ad- Ad- Aphrodite, uh, goddess of sexual love and beauty, uh, there was lots of immorality. But rather than being countercultural, uh, a beacon of light in a dark place, uh, what was happening within the church reflected what was going on around it. And perhaps just as shockingly, uh, Paul's assessment of their gatherings, their meetings, uh, far from being impressive, he said, uh, actually, they did more harm than good. Uh, Those that came left worse off than when they arrived. Well, Paul's letter, I think, is going to burst this church's bubble. It is going to make for painful reading in places. Uh, uh, for a church that thought it had arrived so much so they even started teaching that the resurrection must have already happened uh, for them Uh, Paul's words would be very sobering and shocking Uh, for a church convinced of its uh, spirituality a real buzzword it seems in the church Paul's letter must have come as a huge reality check well if you were to describe Emmanuel, I wonder what words uh, you might use I wonder what comes first into our minds Well, before Paul is done, he may well expose us and confront us with truths we urgently need to hear. But as he does, he will hold out a vision for the church that I hope we'll see is glorious. It will captivate us and cause us to long to be that church that God has called us uh, to be. Well, let's dive in. Uh, Verse one. Paul uh, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the Church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look down at those words, one of the words I think that dominates the opening part of this letter is that word called. Paul is called to be an apostle. Of Jesus Christ, Uh, Corinthians uh, also are called called to be God's holy, uh, set apart people, along with those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before we get much further, let us verse nine. Paul describes the Corinthians as those called into fellowship with God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, I wonder why Paul begins here as he does, describing himself as a called apostle. Perhaps it is to remind the Corinthians that what he writes. Uh, He writes as one with authority. His words to the church are not just his words, actually they come from God to them. Indeed, to be a true church, uh, to be the household of God, as Paul calls it elsewhere, it does mean being built on the teaching of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. That's how the church exists and how it stays together. And so if Paul's words are uncomfortable or unpalatable uh, to us or to uh, his first hearers, they are words we can't ignore. Indeed, to do so would be a very serious thing indeed. And what was true uh, for the Corinthians is also true for us. Uh, we are the church as much as we hold on to the teaching of the apostles and prophets. And to depart uh, from that teaching, perhaps to allow other voices to shape us and define us, is a dangerous thing. However attractive or compelling those voices or ideas may sound. But notice too, uh, the Corinthians themselves are those who received a calling. A calling to be God's holy people in verse 9, to enjoy relationship and fellowship with Jesus. Do you see that Paul, from the very start, makes it very clear that the great privileges of being God's people, of being in fellowship with God through Jesus, only come because God calls us. Indeed, that's what a Christian is, someone who is called. See, God didn't just invite us as though everything depended on our decision and where the credit ultimately ends up with us. No, he called, he, he summonsed us. It was something that God did. Of course, there was a response to be made, verse 2. Uh, those God called are those who call on the name of Jesus. But the Bible makes it very clear that God does all the running. So therefore takes all the credits and the glory. And perhaps for some of us this morning, that is a, a hard truth to accept, isn't it? it it's a humbling truth. You could say it puts us in our place. We can't take any of the credit for being Christians. Indeed, if there are any bragging rights, they are God's and His alone. And so, if this church was a proud church, boasting of its gifts and spiritual prowess, uh, Paul is eager, I think, to bring them down to earth. No, says Paul. If there's any boasting to be done, it can only be boasting in the Lord and not in ourselves or our gifts, or our church. Well, before we're done this morning, we'll just see that a wrong kind of boasting going on in Corinth that reveals just how much these Corinthians had forgotten the gospel and how it had come to them. They only had what they had because of God's undeserved grace to them first. Well, before we move on, notice two important things in Paul's opening that are hugely significant for his readers, I think, and also for us. So verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Did you spot that the Corinthians have uh, two homes? Two homes. They live in Corinth, but they're also in Christ Jesus. They have two addresses, if you like. And for the Christians uh, Paul is writing to, one address is temporary, the other is enduring and eternal. course, Paul is echoing something that Jesus himself taught, that uh, those who are his followers are in the world, but not of it. This is not our ultimate home. We don't belong here. Uh, Elsewhere, Paul talks about having a a heavenly citizenship where Jesus is. Well, I wonder whether that true enduring uh, citizenship of the Corinthians was clear to see. I wonder if by observing them you could tell that they really didn't belong uh, ultimately to Corinth. Or was it a case that much of the culture around them had flooded into the church so that you couldn't tell them apart from their fellow Corinthians? Just this week uh, we were on holiday in France um, and one of the games I like to play is spotting the Englishman in France. Uh, Holidaymakers are fairly easy to spot. They're the ones like us on the beach, huddled together in the cold, uh, dressed more for the Arctic than for the seaside. But even the expats who've lived in France for many years, generally you can tell that they're English and not French. They don't quite fit in or belong. Well, tragically, it did appear that the Corinthians uh, in this church were more like the culture around them more like the world around them than they realised. So much had they been shaped and defined by that culture. And that was especially tragic, given what else Paul says as he writes uh, to these guys. Look down again at verse 2. Uh, to those uh, sanctified or made holy in Christ, called to be his holy people. Do you notice, uh, Paul says that in Jesus, the Corinthians had already been made holy. Holy. That's something that already had happened. But he also describes them as those who have a calling to grow in holiness. Well, what Paul says may first, at first glance sound a little bit confusing. So let's unpack that a little bit more. So Paul recognises, doesn't he, that as the Corinthians came to faith, Jesus made them holy. Something changed. In trusting Jesus, they were forgiven. They were washed clean. In that great exchange we've been thinking about over Easter, uh, their sin was taken by Jesus. And Jesus' perfect life and obedience, his righteousness, was credited to their account. And so before God and in Jesus, they were now holy. And that is a glorious truth to celebrate and to hold on to, to know that God delights in us and accepts us just as he accepts and delights in his son Jesus. But notice, too, as those are made holy, Paul speaks about this wonderful calling to increasingly display that holiness in our daily lives, uh, to increasingly, if you like, become what we already are in Christ, to look more and more like Jesus and to reflect our new identity in him. And so for these Corinthian Christians those who thought they were really going places spiritually. Paul gently reminds them at the start of this letter that the true mark of a Christian, those who are genuinely spiritual, is that deep and growing desire to be more like Jesus, to display that holiness and Christlikeness that reveals who we are and where ultimately we live. Well, there might be many ways we describe Emmanuel, but I wonder if that's one of our defining marks. Not living perfect lives, sure, but ones marked by a great longing to look more and more like Jesus. Or is it the case we've lost sight of our great calling as Christians? Uh, lost sight of the fact that God made us holy that we might increasingly be holy, to display our new identity and reflect. Our new family likeness. Well, if, they're like the Corinthians, we don't look that different from the world around us, then this letter is going to challenge us and encourage us to discover our great calling as Christians. Even if that does mean we don't fit in, we don't feel like we belong, even if it puts us on a collision course with our wider church denomination as it increasingly takes its cue from culture rather than the teaching of Jesus and from Scripture. Well, given the mess and the moral states of the church in Corinth, I think how Paul goes on in this letter is nothing short of astonishing. Let me read again from verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way. With all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, uh, who called you from, his, from into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, the more cynical here might think that Paul's uh, uh, adopting standard sort of management techniques here, uh, scrabbling around for uh, two or three positives uh, before setting out his concerns and criticisms, which will dominate much of the letter. But actually, I think Paul's thankfulness is genuine and sincere. He really is uh, thankful for the evidence of gospel work in the Christians in Corinth. They really do know something of the grace that comes from trusting jesus and they have been given many gifts that have enriched them and equipped them to live out that life as god's holy people and i'm just very deeply challenged i think by paul here uh, these people he writes to must have given Paul an incredible headache at times um, perhaps many sleepless nights as those reports started coming in that are listed that sort of scandal and immorality and arrogance But Paul first sees these very messy Christians through the lens of the gospel. They, just like Paul, had received God's wonderful and undeserved grace. And that, above all, coloured Paul's attitude to them, even more than all the problems and all the mess. Well, I wonder whether that gospel lens is the way we view one another here at Emmanuel, so that we are genuinely thankful for our brothers and sisters, even when they disappoint us, at times they let us down uh, and, like us, fail to live up to their great calling. And notice, too, not only had these Christians in Corinth received the grace that brought them into the Christian family, it seemed God had delighted to, to bless this church with all kinds of gifts, some of which he mentions here, gifts of speech and knowledge. Well, later in this letter, Paul will pull no punches when he comes to, to criticising the way they used uh, those gifts and viewed them. They saw them as, as badges of prestige, a uh, marks of greatness and superiority, gifts to be used for personal fulfillment and self-advancement. But here, I think Paul is reminding them that the very things they took such pride in were what? Gifts. Literally grace gifts from the Lord of the church. So these gifts didn't reveal their excellence or superiority. Rather, they revealed God's generosity and undeserved kindness. Paul is in effect saying, isn't he, look at yourselves. You're so full of yourselves, but then you see that all that you have is only what you've been freely given and graciously given by Jesus. Sometimes we describe people don't we, as gifted, as if somehow that the greatness is self-generated, And something to take pride in. But the clue is in the word, isn't it? Gifted. Something we are given. Something that we receive. I remember as a teenager, someone telling me once that I had a real gift playing the cello. And I remember being rather proud of that gift. Especially when I compared myself to others who I considered less gifted. But the truth was I had sacrificial parents who paid good money for my lessons... And a good and extremely patient teacher who persisted in spite of my lack of practice and effort. And I realise now that even if they had something to work with, it was only because God in his kindness had given me something that I didn't deserve. And it should have produced, didn't it, a deep sense of thankfulness and humble gratitude rather than that misplaced pride. God has given us, hasn't he, many gifts. Indeed, I'm convinced that having given us his son, he gives us all that we need to flourish and to live up to our calling as Christians. And some of those gifts are on display this morning as we gather. But they're equally important gifts that are not seen, that are less visible, yet just as vital. And this letter will encourage us not to identify and use those gifts in a way that promotes ourselves and bolsters our egos, but actually to help the church grow in godliness and effectiveness as we live up to our calling. And it's true, isn't it? When our gifts become all about us, uh, we get puffed up, don't we, in pride. uh, And we gravitate to those gifts that are uh, the ones that look most impressive. Or we fail perhaps to exercise our gifts because we are fearful of failure and bruised egos. But Paul wants us to see that they are are gifts, and gifts to be put into good use for the glory of Jesus to give her. And for the good of his people. Well I wonder what gifts God has given you. Because he has given you gifts. And I wonder if you are humbly using them. Uh, for the good of his people. And the glory of the giver. Well, more on that later in the series. But do you notice how Paul ends this section. That begins with thankfulness. He describes them as waiting for the Lord Jesus. Let me uh, read from verse 7. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that we are to be those not living in the moment or for the moment, but people who live with the future clearly in view. Those, as Paul, who are longing for that great and final day, when we really and fully are all that we were called to be, longing longing for that day when we are with Jesus and finally like Jesus. Now, I might be wrong, but I have this hunch that Christians around the world who very much feel like they don't belong, perhaps as they suffer hardship or persecution for belonging to Jesus, are those who have little trouble looking forward to the day that Jesus returns. But when we get very uh, comfortable in this world, uh, when we're used to fitting in reasonably well, we're, when we're blessed with much which, which the world offers, uh, it is easy to take off our take our eyes off what is coming, and to focus our hopes and desires on what is around us. Well, maybe we are on the, on the threshold of significant change when discomfort and pain are likely to increase if we stay faithful. Uh, to God's word if we live in love and faith under God rather than going with the flow of our culture but if that makes us eagerly wait for the coming of Jesus for that day when we are finally free from sin then maybe what's ahead is actually going to prove a real blessing rather than something to fear and if we do need to rise to that challenge Paul assures us here that Jesus himself will keep us uh, as we Uh, wait for him. He will keep us firm. Well, let's pray that he does. Well, if Paul were writing to Emmanuel, if he were writing a report about us, uh, would he be able to discern a tangible longing for Jesus, a growing anticipation for that day ahead? Uh, Would the choices we make about our gifts, our time, our money, reveal what we're hoping for, what we're holding out for? Or would we be indistinguishable uh, from the world around us whose hopes and dreams are only for this life? Well, verse 10, 10 takes us to the heart of this letter and to the divisions that marred the church that Paul writes to. And this is a theme we're going to explore in the coming weeks, but I do want to just see one thing before we finish. Let me read again from verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you reflect, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Well, the church was splintering around different uh, personalities. It wasn't around theological uh, issues, I don't think, but primarily, uh, because Paul and Apollos and Cephas were all on the same page. They believed and preached the same gospel. They served together for that gospel. No, these divisions reflected our a- pride within the church, That led to people sort of lining up behind different individuals, different personalities, as a way of advancing their own position and power within the church. It's kind of a reflected glory thing where people would attach themselves to particular leaders in order to make a real spiritual impression, to advance their spiritual status and stock. Do you remember during lockdown how politicians would be interviewed often on Zoom and behind them they would have those amazing sort of libraries of books that were written by impressive authors. They probably hadn't read, but it was, wasn't it, to kind of reflect it, that, that something of that glory and to look well-informed and well-read. So how pathetic. Except that don't we do the same things in our own spiritual context. I, I follow Tim Keller I always catch John Piper's podcasts, or whatever famous theologian you like. You did catch their podcast, didn't you? It was excellent. Oh, you didn't. And if you've been on the receiving end of some of those conversations, don't you feel the pressure perhaps to, to bluff, maybe even to lie, so we don't see our spiritual stock fall? Perhaps dropping a few names ourselves or, or mentioning a personal conversation we had with some Christian worthy that we might impress. Well, apparently some in Corinth were playing that game, we follow Christ. No, we weren't playing that game, they were saying, we follow Christ. Well, there was probably a smugness in their voices that sought to trump everyone else. I don't have time for those writers, oh, I just read the Bible. But Paul sees through their spiritual posturing and the pride and egos that drive uh, their games. And he's not even remotely flattered, is he? Because of of those lining up behind him. Those who thought that being baptised by the great apostle Paul somehow made them more worthy than the rest. Do you spot how Paul pops that little bubble in verse 16? Do you know, I don't even remember who I baptised. Well, Paul does challenge this proud church. You're only part of it, says Paul, because God first graciously called you. You're only at a gifted church because God has given you wonderful gifts that you don't deserve. All you have is what you've been given. Someone once said Christians are only beggars who've been shown where to find bread. Or as the Bible puts it, we are nothing more, nothing less than sinners saved by the sheer mercy and grace of God. And to discover that is both deeply humbling and wonderfully liberating. So this week at school or college, we don't need to impress others or looking cool. At our church, we don't need to, to focus on looking the part and hiding the mess to pretend what we are not. Indeed, we can, we can be okay, can't we, about looking weak and showing off some of our mess, showing some of our mess, it means that the cross is lifted up. Jesus' mercy and grace is showcased. He's the one who gets the praise and the glory. Well, I wonder what Paul Wood writes to us. I wonder this week whether we will show that we have two addresses and that we don't ultimately belong here. I wonder if we will display that deep longing to look more like Jesus and be marked by that consuming desire for his return when we will be with him and we will be like him. And I wonder if our lives will be marked by that humble gratitude of those who know they've been graciously called and possess nothing except what God has graciously gifted us. Let's pray that by God's grace and help we will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for calling us into your family. Thank you for that undeserved invitation. Thank you for the ways in which you've gifted us with so much. That is a gift from you. Again, one that we don't deserve. Father, I just pray that even this week, you would help us to reflect something of our thankfulness, our humble gratitude, and that desire, Lord, to increasingly reflect what you have already made us, those that are increasingly like Jesus, and bring honour and glory to him. So help us. Particularly where we find those uh, those callings and those yeah those things that you want us to be hard and difficult, give us grace and strength. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.